Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. the apocalypse a pandemic survival story presents episode two of the alien schizoid story narrated by mike darling i know you're itching for season three of the main narrative to start and it will in a couple weeks never fear as a matter of fact episode one of season three of the main narrative has been written and edited and is in the capable hands of robert for recording so we're not far away from our restart. This episode, however, is not that. This episode is a different story idea that we've been playing with this summer. It's about aliens and schizophrenia, and it's written in a noir style. So give it a listen. This is episode two. Uh, Mike does a great job with the narration. And if you've forgotten, you can go back to episode one from, I don't know, a couple months ago and listen to that. And stay tuned after the narrative because I've got some updates that will interest you in my outro comments. Until then, enjoy Alien Schizoid, Chapter 2, narrated by Mike Darling. Alien Schizoid, Chapter 2, Alien Exposition. The alien presence stared out through Jim's eyes at a field of stained false ceiling tiles. A dingy light fixture was stuck unceremoniously in the center of the ceiling, where it clung morosely like a rotten mushroom. It cast a pallid glow across the room like spilled sludge. The glass globe was littered with the shadow carapaces of dead bugs, like the bizarre art project of a demented entomologist. A pale yellow water stain spread out from the fixture, terminating in brown squiggles, like the shoreline of a dead lake. The wispy wraiths of decades of cigarette smoke clung to the corners where the stucco wall met the ceiling, and further down the scuffed wall's glossy vinyl faux wood paneling ended in a grimy wainscoting about three feet off the carpeted floor. This place was a dive. Even with a limited knowledge of this dimension, the alien presence could see that. What was this man doing here in this roach motel? The alien played back the local time since he'd entered Jim's mind and tried to puzzle it out. 
Jim's mind was a beautiful mind, rich with crenellating shapes and forms like an exotic coral in a deep, hot ocean. The chaotic beauty of this mind was why the alien chose him in the first place, specifically chose the mind of Jim Lassick from the bubbling sea of thought constructs in this place. The alien projected into this dimension through the rift, chasing the one who would bring chaos, but he needed a host mind that would anchor him in this place and enable him to act, a life form in which to hide. Local sentience would be the anchor here, to which he could fix his projected plasma mind. He needed a mind that he could infiltrate and shroud himself in like a hermit crab in a shell. He entered this world through the rift and searched for a shell that would suit his needs, a mind open to his entreaties, a mind preferably of a leader, someone respected, someone with the juice to get things done, who the alien could partner with to catch the miscreant pulling the caper. He was drawn to the mind of this man, Jim, as a candidate, almost immediately, because of its beauty. It was wide open and unique, more so than the surrounding minds that were ordered and locked without flexibility. These other minds were rigid and fixed with defined boundaries. They were fragile and brittle to the touch like sugar candy glass. When the man, Jim, had won the award and praise of his kind, when he had stepped forward proudly in front of his assembled colleagues, it had cemented the alien's decision. Here was a master of men, a doer of deeds, a worthy partner to solve the case. But to exist here, the alien not only needed a mind for an anchor, he also needed an identity. An identity separate from the plasma continuum in his own time and place. An identity of the proper shape and size and color to project his purpose in this place. To exist here, to communicate with these people, to complement this local identity, he needed a name. Quetzalcoatl was the name he chose. It matched his purpose here like a warm overcoat matched a winter's day. Quetzalcoatl was a local god, and he would be a god amongst these local homo sapiens. It wouldn't be a bad thing if they knew him as a god, to respect him, maybe even to fear him. If he had to take on an identity in this dimension, it should suit his stature and his purpose and help him get the job done. For he was an instrument of civilization and order. Civilization and order were the eternal and enduring pillars that transcended the known universe. That was his job. He was an agent of civilization and order. In the history of this world, he had found the name of Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec god of civilization and order, and was pulled to it like a galaxy being sucked into a massive black hole. Not that he didn't have a name of his own. In his own dimension. It was a fine and proper name for his kind, a delicate unfurling of plasma frequencies that felt sweet and comforting as he sensed it trilling from the minds of his kin in the continuum. Loosely translated, his own name was Strength from the Storms, not so different from Protector of Civilization and Order. There was chaos everywhere in the universe, and everywhere life in its many forms fought back against that chaos. That was the Dance of Sentience. This was Quetzalcoatl's modus operandi. The trilled plasma name of Strength from the Storms would mean nothing to this man whose mind he was sharing. This man's mind lacked the basic context to understand the wavelength flux of plasma through time. The name Quetzalcoatl he chose in the local frequencies because he was on a job to stop an assault on civilization and order. Surely the local minds would recognize this name, make the connection, and help him with his mission. 
He had been sent here. When the rift opened, they seized the opportunity and he was sent through the narrow window to find a way to stop the one who would bring chaos. The one who would bring chaos was another of his kind from the plasma rift that had come to this world. He needed to be found and stopped. Now, it was hard to believe, but Quetzalcoatl was looking out at this grimy, grim motel room through the eyes of this man, lying here blubbering on the musty sheets of this rat-trap dive. The beautiful mind was convulsing with disorder. Had Quetzalcoatl been wrong about this man? Had he missed something? Had he been led astray by the beauty of this mind? Quetzalcoatl would have sighed with resignation if there was such a thing in Plasma Flux. There was no turning back now. The game was on. He'd have to work with what he'd chosen. He'd have to pull together the quivering strands of sentience in this man's mind and make a clean go of it. Okay, kid, we gotta go, Quetzalcoatl said in the man's mind. What do you want from me? Jim whispered. What do I want? I want you to stop acting like a baby doll. Get your caucus out of this rat-eating flea box and help me stop the caper. But you're not real. Jim said, shaking his head and clasping his face in his hands. I'm as real as a roadstick, kid. Now let's shake it. The clock's ticking. Why do you talk like that? Jim asked, realizing he was starting to have a conversation with a voice in his head, and that was worrisome in itself. But it was what it was at this point. Like what? The voice said. I'm a private dick on a job. That's how I'm supposed to talk. A private dick? Jim asked, confused. Yeah, a gumshoe, a soldier. A hired gun for the committee, Quetzalcoatl insisted. I'm here to do a job, and you're going to help me. So drag your sorry ass out of the rack and let's get to it. Jim mumbled disconnected words. Dang, gumshoe? Job. But found himself sitting up and moving towards the door. Whether of his own volition or something else, he couldn't tell. He was tired of fighting. He needed to move forward to make sense of this. He knew the voice wasn't real. He knew the break he had been fearful of his whole life had finally come. And uncannily, with that realization, the fear went away. And he found not only a sense of relief, but the emerging fronds of peacefulness. Jim sighed in resignation. There was no turning back now. The game was on. He'd have to work with this new construct. He'd have to pull together the quivering strands of sentience in his mind and make a go of it. The hallway was dirty, with scuffed walls, and was open to the outside on each end. Jim stepped into the buzzing fluorescent glow and looked around, unsure of what would happen next. Unsure of what the voice from his broken and schizophrenic mind would want him to do. Oh God, Jim thought. Please don't let me hurt anyone. Shut up, kid. I'm here to help. Keep moving. Let's go out the back, kid, and watch out for tails. The bad guy's nowhere here, and we've been in one place too long. Jim turned and hurried his shaky steps down the brown walkway past a half-lit coke machine that showed signs of a hard life in a bad place. He moved like an automatron toward the rear exit. Like a zombie. Like a condemned man without hope of redemption. I know you're not real, Jim stated conversationally, but do you got a name I can call you? Quetzalcoatl's the name, bub. Keep the racket down and keep your eyes peeled. Quetzalcoatl? 
Jim butchered and thought he felt something move in his mind. Nah, kid, Quetzalcoatl. The voice paused. Tell you what, bub, you can call me QZ. QZ, Jim repeated numbly as he passed into the alley behind the motel. Jim stepped out into the early evening darkness of the California night. A single streetlight pushed down a pool of light onto the cracked cement, half illuminating a battered dumpster. Something rat-like scurried out of sight. A cloud of bugs haloed the streetlight, creating its own galaxy in the moonless gloom. The place smelled of rotten food and sewers. Which way now, QZ? Jim asked, amused to be taking directions from his own insanity. Go left, kid. Ya other left. And stay close to the wall, out of sight. I don't like the looks of this place. Could be a trap. Jim slid along the wall in the dim light. Broken glass and trash crunched under his shoes. Some sort of fluid, black with darkness, dripped from a bent aluminum downspout and ran in a wet line toward the center of the alley, but petered out before reaching the rusted drain. Freeze it, kid, there's somebody coming. QZ said in his head, and Jim stopped against the wall. Are you packing heat? The voice asked. Heat? Jim said. Yeah, kid. A heater. A rod. A gat. A piece. You know. A weapon. No, sir, Jim replied. I'm not allowed to carry a gun. That's too bad, kid, QZ said. I'm guessing our friends aren't operating under the same restrictions. Jim flattened himself against the rough wall as the first of four figures emerged from around the corner. Forms materialized from the gloom. It was obvious they weren't just out for an evening stroll. They walked with a purposeful slouched malevolence that projected violence. They were looking for something. Or someone. They moved with the animal toughness of youth. Their boots clomped in the gloom, echoing off the stucco walls. They all wore torn jeans above punk combat boots. Two had leather jackets and the other two wore t-shirts revealing muscular, tattooed arms. Three of the tufts had shaved heads that reflected the dim streetlight overhead. The fourth wore a red bandana tied tight, from which emerged a large dragon tattoo that crawled down the side of his neck. Jim felt like a kitten among angry wolves. There was no place for him to hide. He tensed to run. QZ spoke in his head. Stay still, kid. Don't run. Relax. Let's see what we can figure. Jim stayed silent and still, frozen with fear. Now the voice in his head was going to get him mugged and left in a dirty alley to die like a vagrant. He made a move to run anyhow, in denial of the voice, but it was too late. The four toughs saw him there in the darkness against the wall. Oi, the one in the bandana said. Is this the weasel rat we're looking for? The others fanned out in a loose semicircle, boxing in Jim where he cowered. The bandana man moved forward quickly, producing what looked like a slender knife, grabbed Jim by the collar and shoved him hard into the wall. Wallet, he said in a low and menacing command. Jim was terrified and unable to speak, but did his best to nod his head in acknowledgement. He shifted his weight off the wall to reach for his wallet. Maybe if he just did what they said, he would come out of this unhurt, or at least alive. Easy, the bandana man growled. Jim pulled his wallet out of his back pocket and handed it over like he was told. What did he care? 28 bucks in cash and a credit card he'd have to cancel. Nothing he couldn't handle. He just needed to stay cool and keep his shit together. He hoped he could keep his head right. He needed to focus on staying alive 
and didn't want to be distracted by another episode of mental schism. Where was the voice in his head now? Now that things were incredibly stressful for him, shouldn't this cause the psychosis to manifest? To accelerate? That's how stress had worked before. He was glad, though, that the voice left him. He could better deal with these punks with his head clear, live to fight another day. Bandana Man stepped back in the yellow glow of the streetlight and fingered the wallet. He pulled out Jim's license and held it up to the pallid light. The other three ringed Jim silently with menace in their stances. He's the guy we're looking for, Bandana Man said, tossing the license and wallet to the ground and advancing toward where Jim still stood. Quetzalcoatl spoke softly, but Jim jerked with surprise. Move up a kid. I think we can take him, but you're going to have to let me drive. What? Jim intoned to the voice in his head. I've never been in a fight in my life. Now's as good a time as any to learn, kid. QZ responded. Jim felt something strange happening in his body. Glands were being manipulated. A rush of spring-like energy pulsed out into his arms and legs. Time seemed to slow down. It was as if he was watching a movie. Jim was an observer as his body reacted to the scene. He saw the hand with the knife coming forward towards his gut and brought his own hand down sharply to push it away and down to the side into the wall. Jim's other arm reached out to grab behind the bandana man's head and pulled sharply, building on the man's forward momentum, pivoting sideways, slamming his tattooed skull into the wall where Jim had stood only a moment ago. It wasn't brute strength or speed that Jim was using. It wasn't magical. It was as if someone had simply turned up his inner clock a tick faster. As he slung Bandana Man into the wall, Jim slid into a side lunge, lifting a leg and brought the free foot down on the side of the man's knee, yielding a sickening pop. The man screamed and slumped to the ground, clutching his knee. The other three froze momentarily, as if not believing what they had just seen, but then moved all at once towards Jim. Jim took a quick step towards the one on the right, and his hand flashed out into the punk's windpipe. Jim spun behind the bug-eyed and gasping man and used him as a blocker, pushing towards the next one in line. As the approaching thug tried to push his gasping companion aside, Jim stomped on the instep of his boot and brought the knee of that foot up sharply into his groin. The fourth man surveyed the carnage and decided he had lost his appetite for violence. He hesitated, looked at Jim, shook his head and ran. Jim paused, gasping a bit, bug-eyed in the dim light. He raised his hands and looked at them like they were some foreign appendages. How... How? Jim gasped, standing alone in a clearing between the groaning punks like some avenging angel of justice from a comic book. How? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my survivor friends. And thank you for listening through the second chapter of the Alien Schizoid story. First, we'll have some quick announcements, and then I'll talk a little bit about just what the heck we mean when we say noir. So thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. The link to Mike's podcast, the links, uh, will be available in the show notes. He's got a series called Tales from the Wasteland on his feed, which is called the Apocalypse Post. So if you search for Apocalypse Post in your podcast app, you'll find Mike's show. And I'll also put the links in the notes. While we're on that subject, Wasteland Weekend, which is the big event for those uh, Apocalypse people, that's coming up soon. So go check that out. That a little bit of survival fun in the desert for you folks. So season three of our After the Apocalypse narrative with the old man will start again at the end of this month, which for you time travelers is August 2022. I've got the first episode written and in production with Robert as we speak. I am, this is the big announcement here, is that I am creating an ad-free and early release subscription option on ACAST. And more details on how this will work mechanically are forthcoming, but this will allow you to get the shows without the annoying insurance ads from ACAST and get the shows a week earlier than the general public just setting this option up because it's a new feature in ACAST, and I'll have instructions soon. There should be a link inserted into the show notes for the landing page to take advantage of it, but we'll see if that works. Just set that up. And this should make it easier for you survivors to binge listen as well. I know one of the things that bugs me when I'm binge listening through a podcast series is having to listen to the same ads over and over and over again. It's like, yeah, I get it. Stop. So, We'll have that option. So thank you for letting me take the summer off to explore some other stuff. And I am excited to get back to it. So let's talk about noir. Noir is a French word for black. When people refer to a book or a film as noir, they are generally referring to the style or the tone. And that style is a dark tone. Film noir is where the film has a black or dark atmosphere. And this was originally applied to hard-boiled detective and gangster dramas and films in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But the noir aspect, the approach, is much broader than that in its application. So it generally describes narratives where the atmosphere is more important than the plot. In a noir novel, that atmosphere is created by detailed description and characters. In a film, it's created by that detailed and immersive cinematography and screenplay. For example, think of a long, dark close-up of a brooding character's face with no other dialogue, or that long panning shot of dark woods or outer space, right? That's all sort of the atmosphere and tone setting in a noir way in a film. So if you think about it this way, many of the films you love and I love are done in this film noir style. 
So think about, for example, think about the dark atmosphere of a Blade Runner film. And many, if not all, apocalypse stories and films have this noir aspect to them, that they're set in that dark atmosphere. Because, of course, the world just ended, so it's pretty dark. Uh, After the Apocalypse sets that dark atmosphere through its descriptive language and use of dark dark, uh, metaphors and dark vocabulary. A good way to think about noir is what is the mood that this piece of art creates? So for my homework this summer, I figured I'd go back to first principles, go back to the source, and I read the two most famous books of this genre that would pop into your mind when somebody says noir. They are, first, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler from 1939, and The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett from 1930. And I got to tell you, these were great fun to read. Both of these novels come from the pulp magazine industry and culture of the early 20th century. So what's a pulp magazine? Think of it this way. If you were to get on the subway today, you'd see everyone with their face in their phones, right? Back in the early part of the century, though, they would have had their faces buried in a pulp magazine. These were cheap, sensational magazines that ran short stories and series around a specific genre, like mystery or detective or science fiction even. This is where all our famous sci-fi writers from the Golden Age got their start, in the pulps. One of these magazines was started in 1920 by no other than H.L. Mencken, and I won't go into an H.L. Mencken story, but you should look that up, famous guy, and it was called The Black Mask, and it was full of stories about crime dramas that included sex and gore and violence, just the kind of thing every boy wants. And one of the first successful authors in The Black Mask was Dashiell Hammett, who wrote about his hard-boiled protagonist, Detective Sam Spade. And after being published as short stories or serials in The Black Mask, The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep were fleshed out into standalone novels. And these are really interesting pieces of writing. They have this really dark tone, hence the noir. And these characters, they live in an America that is seedy and filled with booze and sexual perversion and crime and murder and guns. And into the middle of this seedy milieu stride the hard-boiled protagonists. In The Falcon, it's Sam Spade. In Big Sleep, it's Philip Marlowe. And they are the red-blooded American anti-hero. For the average reader, it must have rung true. Nobody's perfect. Everyone is just trying to do their best to get by with their moral compass intact and get through life in a dark and corrupt world. Marlowe and Spade are an idealized caricature in that sense of real Americans for the mass audience. They are real men who went out in the end, but they're flawed. But they're not corrupt. They drink whiskey, they smoke cigarettes, throw punches, and they know how to handle a gun. The world is dark, but it's ordered. Working stiffs try to get by with their wits, and rich people are corrupt in the true sense, corrupted by drugs, sex, and murder. It's never in doubt 
who you should be rooting for. Life is cheap. Everyone has a gun, but there's surprisingly little gunplay by today's standards. So what makes this writing noir? Well, the first is that the text is incredibly descriptive when scene setting. There's this heavy use of metaphor, but not a literary use of metaphor. They'll use a paragraph or two to describe something very ordinary using simple vocabulary or slang. And the tone is very dark. It's not desperate, it's dark. The characters are resolved to their lot in life and doing the best they can to get by in this dark world. And at first glance, you would think that in a detective story, the plot would be very important. But no, the plots are not straightforward whodunit formulas. The mystery is in the background, the characters, and their dark interactions. That stuff is on the main stage. The whodunit stuff gets pushed to the background by the, hey, what are they going to do next of the characters as each is revealed and unwrapped as you go through the narrative, through the story. And the resolution then is the resolution of the characters in their journey, not the resolution of who committed the crime. The Falcon is, in fact, just a lead statue with no value. It falls flat. It's an unsatisfying, unsensational resolution, but that is fitting for this dark universe where there is no resolution for anyone. It's just another day of doing the best you can to get by in this corrupting world. So for fun, here's a uh, outtake, an example of a detailed description paragraph from The Big Sleep. And I quote, The room was too big. The ceiling was too high. The doors were too tall and the white carpet that went from wall to wall looked like a fresh fall of snow at Lake Arrowhead. There were full-length mirrors and crystal doodads all over the place. The ivory furniture had chromium on it, and the enormous ivory drapes lay tumbled on the white carpet a yard from the windows. The white made the ivory look dirty, and the ivory made the white look bled out. The windows stared towards the darkening foothills. It was going to rain soon. There was pressure in the air already. So there you go. This is the point of noir style. Atmosphere is more important than plot, and it's driven by description and characterization. So have some fun. Go back and watch Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep and, and see how they try to manage that tone versus plot. Those old films do stay very close to the novels, except for the sex parts. They couldn't get away with that due to the code. And think about all the films you've seen where the noir element of atmosphere setting and descriptive camera work, they come to the fore. I love the noir style. In this Alien Schizoid series, I'm writing it in a full-on noir style on purpose and for fun. And I hope you enjoy it. I'll talk to you soon and keep surviving.